Welcome to the seventh episode of Regulate Tech with me, Nicholas Beer-Lumblad, and... With me, Richard Allen. And in this seventh episode, we are going to tackle an enormous subject. And I think that, that we're going to at least try to set out some fundamental definitions and make a few distinctions that can be helpful for us in our, our coming episodes. And the subject, of course, uh, is privacy. One you really can't get around if you're talking about technology policy. Now, one of the things I find helpful is to start with the history of privacy. And if you look back at the early 1970s, when we got our first privacy or data protection laws, they were almost only oriented around the relationship between the state and the citizens, weren't they? Very much so. I mean, the, the, in a sense that there are sort of two, two aspects to how the state can use data. One is that the state can observe people in order to protect them and keep them safe. And, uh, and there's a whole set of law around that, actually, around surveillance laws and says, you know, when, when is it lawful to uh, observe people in order to try and keep them safe? But the other thing that states can do is take that data and use it to harm people. And the standout examples were the totalitarian regimes, not, not just the Nazi regime in Germany, but um, other totalitarian regimes in Europe that followed on uh, from the Second World War and right up until the 1970s, we had countries like uh, Portugal and Spain being run effectively by fascist regimes. Uh, and so perhaps it's no surprise then that Europe was the place that um, people first got really interested in the notion of a, a regulation that policed the way in which governments were able to collect data about their citizens and with a really strong emphasis on not allowing governments to get hold of sensitive characteristics, the kind of things that totalitarians used to single people out and murder them. So your religion, your ethnicity, your trade union membership, etc. Um, so, so in many ways, the, the, certainly the European conception of data protection regime was anti-fascist uh, inoculation, <laughs> if you like. It was how do we, how do we to make sure that the databases don't exist that could allow some future fascist regime uh, to do harm to citizens. I think that in Sweden and a few other countries, it was actually not just about fascism, but also about communism. This notion that the Soviet Union uh, was co collecting data on its citizens and, and it, it was collecting it from several different directions. So one of the core concepts of early data protection legislation was this notion of not being allowed, the state was not being allowed to combine data from one agency with another one. Um, and, and I think that there's there's a lot there if you want to understand the roots of privacy. But but then it changed, and increasingly privacy came to be about companies and and their cons their customers. Why do you think that was? What were the driving factors? So, so I think again, if we tease these things out, there is there's this set of legislation that's very specifically. You're right; it's not just about fascists; it's about totalitarians of left or right, um, and actually the. The influx of countries from Central and Eastern Europe into the EU um, in the 1990s actually gave a boost to this because these were people who had, again, suffered very recently from their governments having secret police forces that collated files on people and, and used those to harm them. So, so there's one strand, which is how, how do we make sure that the state uh, doesn't end up acting like these totalitarian states, how do we protect data from that? But, but there is also, I think, in parallel, a, a very long-running uh, sense of privacy as some kind of inherent right and so we see it you know turning up in human rights instruments way back to the 1950s and i think one of the reasons is, is there is because there there is something instinctive there's protection of, sort of, of 
from from uh, offence by the state, but there's also something about us just as private citizens that we want some sense of privacy. And the, the definition I really like is one that says, you know, privacy is a state in which one is not observed or disturbed by others. Um, and, and so that just that sense that if other people are observing me without my permission, uh, again, to be clear, you can give permission to be observed, but if people are observing you without permission, that in itself is kind of creepy and and harmful to your sense of well-being. And certainly if they're observing you and then disturbing you, they're, they're using those observations in some ways uh, to, to kind of harm you. You know, that's uh, not just sort of creepy, but creepy and directly harmful potentially to you as an individual. So, so that notion of privacy as a, as a sort of inherent right or, or certainly a desirable uh, thing that society should offer to people, I think also goes back uh, quite a long way. But it's much, much harder to codify in law, uh, in a sense. So, so you know, do not collect government databases, do not collect databases of certain kinds of information uh, because you're a totalitarian regime. That, that can be codified in law in certain ways. This general sort of sense of well-being and not being observed is, is, is much more diffuse. Um, uh, and it's something people are trying to capture in law, but I think that's, that's often where the data protection laws and people's expectations sometimes aren't aligned. And of course, we have the US definition of privacy as the right to be let alone, and then comes from the, the, the 1890s, really. I mean, if you look at Brandeis and the definition of privacy as it was set out then. But if you dig beneath this definition, I like it, the, the right, uh, the, sort of the question of if you're observed or disturbed. One way to phrase it is to say that that uh, privacy can be about confidentiality, about you have, having the ability to keep secrets, literally. And the other is is about something that I find more and more interesting when we look at privacy, which is autonomy. This idea that I should be able to act by my own free will and not be manipulated into doing things, that I shouldn't be, uh, that I shouldn't be, uh, you know, essentially, uh, uh, what's the word? I would say I wouldn't be manipulated into buying things I don't need, for example, uh, that my autonomy is absolutely essential. So so how do you think that has shifted over time? Confidentiality, autonomy, what, is there a sense in the shift in emphasis when it comes to the right to privacy? Um, so, so certainly, yes. I, th- I think historically, the real focus was on confidentiality. So if you look at you know, a lot of the cases, and in, in Europe, we have Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which, amongst other things, defines the right for your correspondence to be private. And so there's quite a lot of case law on on times when the state wishes to interfere with your with the confidentiality of your communication. So at what point, what kind of evidence they need of wrongdoing? I think most people would say, look, you know, a state shouldn't have the right to look at all of your correspondence all of the time. Uh, that would be outrageous. But equally, I, I think most people would say the state should not be prohibited from ever looking at someone's private correspondence if they've got very good reason to do so. And if by doing so, for example, they are able to prevent a, a violent incident that would result in in other human rights, the right to life being um, severely compromised. Um, and so there's lots of case law around that notion of confidentiality. I think that's been the heart of it, uh, of the of the sort of legal debate we've had over the last, you know, uh, 50, 60 years. I think you're right to put your finger on autonomy as a different subject where I think there's a lot lot less, uh, sort of has been a lot less focus um, because it's just not, it's not been 
something that is easily legislated for. And again, it's not a single or simple vector. So, so the vector of state to citizen is relatively straightforward. You know, I mean, actually, actually if you look at surveillance laws, uh, the UK one's the one I'm most familiar with. It basically says, look, private citizens can't do this at all. Like, there's no way I'm allowed to do wiretapping as a private citizen. Um, so that's simple. We just banned it. Uh, but then it does say, you know, and the state can do it under under certain circumstances. So these state to citizen relationships are the ones where there's been a huge amount of focus. Citizen to citizen, or citizen to private entity like a company, it uh, just hasn't had the same focus. And I think is genuinely much more complex um, mm. because now there's an element of consent involved, and this is again your autonomy. The, the sort of flip side of or the demonstration of autonomy is consent. Um, and so a lot of the debates we're having around privacy is have people really consented to things? Uh, and under what circumstances do they consent to it? Because if they've consented, arguably they are still behaving autonomously. They, they said, I want to get this service, and I'm happy to give you all my data to get this service. You could argue if that's a true consent, it's autonomous. Um, if, on the other hand, the person didn't really understand what they were signing up for, and somebody's manipulating the data and using that to manipulate them without them ever having really acknowledged the deal or agreed to it, then we're, we're in interesting territory. But again, that's so much more complex than the simple kind of state to citizen relationships we normally deal with. And also much more complex, I think, than the confidentiality question, because a large part of the response from the corporate sectors, for example, have been around uh, transparency and control, the notion that you should have control over your information, which is essentially a confidentiality enhancing technology, whereas autonomy enhancing technology is much harder to conceive of or understand what it would be. But but it's clear, I think, that, that the autonomy piece of this uh, has become a much stronger a component in the internet made me do me it made me do it rhetoric yeah. uh, where people know so much about me that I'm not responsible for my own actions anymore and and there is there is this notion that if I profile you if I have data about you I will be able to make you act in ways that are thoroughly alien to you do you believe that's true uh, no I mean I think well I believe we should research that question thoroughly there is there is a hypothesis uh, one hypothesis says, I mean, essentially, yes, people are very easily manipulable. And, and again, that can be generalized. But, but in crude terms, it says, you know, if I go online and I see one piece of information that tells me vaccinations are unsafe and, and carry uh, Bill Gates's microchips, that I will, on seeing that one piece of information, I will, uh, if, correct, if I've been correctly profiled and so on, that I'm just going to, like, abandon the vaccine. There's another school of thought which says, look, I'm going to seek out that kind of information because that's the kind of person I already am. I'm already a skeptic. And and those are both sort of interesting hypotheses. One that, that you know, we're very easily manipulable, manipulable and information is being pushed at us and, and, and changing our decisions. The other is that, look, we've already made the decisions and what we do online is we seek out the information that reinforces positions we already take. Honestly, I don't think any of us knows the extent to which either of those is true and the reality is probably... Most things somewhere in the middle uh, uh, between those two propositions. And this is why I think we really need the research to understand that. I think it's a burning question for society is to understand the extent to which techniques like profiling and pushing out forms of information really do change people's decisions and behaviours, as I say, or the extent to which people's decisions and behaviours 
influence the actions that they take online and the activities they take online and maybe all this profiling and stuff is kind of you know neither here nor there it's kind of it's, it's basically telling us what the people are like uh it doesn't tell us any more than that it doesn't create a sort of pool of people that you can shift in a different direction it's it's interesting there's a recent book out by a guy called hugo mercier who's a cognitive psychologist it's called not born yesterday and he has this intriguing argument where he says essentially that if we were as gullible as people seem to assume in the debate that we have today we wouldn't have survived from an evolutionary perspective so we can't be this gullible we probably have much more will than we would be uh, willing to admit and so we should be more responsible for our own actions and he he brings this back to two points that i found fascinating one was propaganda the kind of propaganda that you saw in the Second World War, where where a lot of people uh, were not manipulated into believing it, but actually really felt that it fit with the worldview that they had. When you do research uh, post the Second World War, you find that that this seems to be the case. And the, the other thing that he points out, which is is interesting because it sort of provides a dilemma for, for many of the platforms, is that uh, internet advertising doesn't work well either. And so this notion that we are, are and they, they're tied together in an interesting way, because if you believe that we are really easy to manipulate, uh, then internet advertising works really, really well. But if internet advertise, if we can't be manipulated, and if we are not sort of open to that kind of manipulation, then internet advertising might be overhyped. Yeah. So... I guess that one of the interesting questions here is that there's a there's a premise that I think we'll come back to underlying the notion of internet advertising that it's different than all other kinds of advertising and then has much more deep impact on the individual. Whereas we come back to an issue that I think we raised before about human agency: how much freedom do we have to act, and how much is our individual responsibility vis-a-vis the the, the theme that the internet made me do it. Yeah. I mean, you've you've landed on one of the um, criticisms I think that's very fair of uh, internet companies, including the one that I used to work for, which is this sort of uh, double speak of uh, when you want to sell your advertising products, you go out and say, you know, this is the best thing since sliced bread. It's if you use online advertising, you're going to get into people's minds and and ship them, and then when it doesn't suit you, you kind of say, well, the advertising didn't really have much effect. Uh, um, Equally, though, you can flip that round with the critics who will who will talk up the advertising, and when it suits them, they'll go, "This internet advertising, you know, it's turning otherwise normal, decent citizens into crazy anti-vaxxers and and whatever." Uh, um, at the same time, they'll say, "But you know, the business models of these companies is is useless and founded on, you know, something terrible, and it shouldn't be allowed to to kind of happen." So we're we're all. Again, maybe it's a classic example again of we we find the facts to justify the position that we already had. Um, So we're just doing it here in this debate. Again, I think the honest answer is, like most things, somewhere in between that. that, I mean, I think the, the most powerful thing about Internet advertising is that you're getting a message in front of. Uh, lots of people and typically people in the right demographics. So the most, as I understand it, the most sort of powerful tools in internet advertising are like age, gender, location. You know, these are the things that actually make the advertising efficient. And then within that, you you can add on lots of other categories of interest that help you narrow down and narrow down to make it cheaper, frankly, because you're going to not waste your time advertising to a bunch of people who are not in the market. Now, does it does it go beyond that? Uh, just getting your product in front of people and and make it so that they they're going to buy something they wouldn't otherwise have bought. Well, again, as you said, I think we need to turn to the psychologists for that, and and we certainly need a lot more research to understand that dynamic. 
Uh, Absolutely. No, I, and, and I, I think that to a large degree, a public policy department is what companies have to to take care of the marketing that they do as a, the secondary effects of the marketing department success. Okay. So there's <laughs> some truth to this. Yeah. Um, but let's get back to, so going back to the history of privacy, one of the, the landmark events, I guess you have to say, is the 9546EC, the first data protection directive that was put in place in Europe. And, and I remember distinctly, because uh, I'm now dating myself, horribly. I remember distinctly that the debate around this in the beginning uh, was quite intense. Um, and there was a lot of people from the news industry who thought that this privacy directive would significantly curtail free expression. And there was another debate that I, I think has receded into the background a bit, but it would be interesting to revive, which was between these, the notion of a use-based model for regulation, where you look at every single piece of processing and the sort of entire process of collecting data and processing it and analyzing it, etc. And then there was another model that was launched. It was called an abuse model. The notion being that if we can really just prove harm, we should be focusing on that harm and not try to regulate the entire process of collecting data because that's going to be too rigorous and too onerous for, for not just companies, but for authorities and agencies as well. Obviously, the abuse model lost. Why, do you think? Um, so, so interesting, I think, again, we cast ourselves back to 1995, and I, I actually sat on the committee in the UK Parliament that that transposed that directive into uh, UK law back in the days when we transposed EU directives. I was a part of the, the European DG uh, expert yeah. group that was looking at uh, the transposition yeah. as well, and it was, yeah, it's crazy. Um, but, but again, if I, th- I think back, actually, what's remarkable is the extent to which the law was framed with the notion of paper filing systems in mind. Because again, it, 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 would, it came into EU law in 95. It had been kicking around, you know, for quite a while before that. And it was actually based on models you described, the HESA model and other models that, that were essentially around paper filing systems that were written in the 70s and 80s. And this is the impression we certainly had at the UK Parliament end that that the, the idea was, and this is why I think it is very different, that, you know, you had to register uh, back in the early days as a data uh, controller. And again, that, that's sort of gone by the by now because everyone's a data controller. So like uh, the whole world now uses data. But when that directive was written, I think the idea was much more that, um, you know, uh, buckets of private data or personal data only held by relatively small number of institutions and, and used for a relatively small number of purposes and therefore, they can all be required to register. And this whole process almost sort of had a manual feel to it. A subject access request, you write a letter and say, please send me the file, the, you know, almost the paper file. And yes, these things were being computerized. But the logic was the logic of a small number of large organizations holding data. And the regulation was sort of geared around that. Not that it was a very large number of small organizations and your abuse model, I think, is much more appropriate if you're thinking it's a large number of small organizations because, you know, you, you haven't got time to properly supervise every single one of them. So the best thing to do is is to focus on those where you think there is a problem. 
But I say that that I don't think was the philosophy of the '95 directive, as, as I suppose. No, it, and it's interesting. I, I think you hit on something that's incredibly important, and that is that that data protection was seen as a quality mark of a bureaucratic process. So what were you were thinking about was how do I make this bureaucratic process better and more uh, safe for the citizen in different ways? So so instead of thinking about uh, privacy harms, it was very clearly about how to ensure quality in a process. But that stuck. That, you know, the internet came and the whole conceptual model in the 9546 EC still resonates quite a lot with the GDPR, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think that, that actually creates some problems which probably only could be worked out through litigation. But you're right, right on, the, on the language. I mean, it's interesting. This was the data protection directive, not a privacy directive. And we use these terms interchangeably, and I, I kind of find it frustrating that data protection, privacy, and then sometimes data privacy, and they're all interchangeable. And, and again, I'll give my definitions, others may may have their own, but um, data protection legislation, I think is based on the assumption you are going to be collecting and using data. Um, so that's why it's not privacy legislation, it's almost the opposite. It's always saying, you know, in a world where there isn't absolute privacy, what are the rules you need to follow to process that data correctly? And it doesn't really have a value judgment about at heart about whether it's good or bad that you should be pr- processing the data. I mean, from a privacy point of view, you would say don't process it, whatever, you know, uh, just just tr- try and not observe people. From a data protection point of view, yeah, there's some principles in there like data minimization that says, you know, don't do things that are excessive. But it's, it is based on this assumption that you are collecting and doing stuff with the data. And it's a set of rules for how to do that safely and properly. It, it, I think, again, very difficult when we talk about GDPR because it's the, um, you know, the benchmark uh, legislation. But I do think there is a problem that's going to come out more and more, which is that, again, it is based on this original notion that you can clearly define people's roles. So for those who are less geeky, you have these things called data uh, uh, controllers, which is really the, the entity that actually decides what goes in and out of a database. And then you have things called data processors who, who may be the people that are actually managing the database on behalf of the data controller. And, and you have a data subject, which is an individual about whom data is being collected. And all of that, I think, is based on a notion that, that you know, there are these clearly defined roles and boundaries. And then with the Internet, we've ended up with this kind of real hodgepodge of uh, people doing different things at different times. One you know, classic example, which has come up more and more in, in, in a number of court cases, is um, when we have the transition from the original web. So the original web, you went to a website, www.nicholaslumblad.se, and uh, all of the content and all of the activity on that site was run by Nicholas Lumblad. So you could say he's the data controller for any data he collects. You go to a modern website, and it might have five pieces of embedded content. Uh, it's got a YouTube video, it's got a Google map, it's got a Flickr photo, it's got a whatever. And all of a sudden, you know, by visiting one website property, like, like who is the data controller now? And you can say, well, it's still Nicholas Lumblad if it's his site. Well, yes, but he only has limited control over the data that goes to all these other providers. And so we say we've ended up in a very complex world. And yet we're still trying to apply legislation, I think, that sort of assumes... A, a, a more rigid structure or more clearly defined roles. Uh, and I say some of this is being litigated if, uh, in cases that often go to the European Court of Justice, which is the ultimate interpreter of European data protection law. 
I suspect there's a lot more litigation to come. And 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 we are going to find this challenge over really trying to understand who is responsible for what data when in a very complex, tangled web that we now have online. And I think yeah, you, you're sort of spot on when it comes to this question, because it is really about the conceptual model, isn't it? How we're thinking about the problem. And one thing that has always struck me as, as a peculiar is that, that we started with data. And that sort of data was the atom of data protection law. Uh, you can hear it in the name, or a privacy law. That's the way we sort of understand privacy is through this notion of data. And in the early 9546 data, personal data was defined as any data that could identify an individual or pieces of data that if they could be connected, could be used to identify a, a, a personal uh, a person. And, and and data to me, I understand why you start there, but but... It also is conceptually confusing because if you think about it, privacy is a secondary concept. It's a concept that requires another concept to make sense. And the other concept that it requires to make sense is identity. If you don't know anything about identity, it's really hard to have an intelligent conversation about privacy. It's like Wittgenstein used to say about doubt. You can't understand the concept of doubt unless you first understand the concept of belief. And it's the same for me with privacy. And, and when we start with data, something that's sort of a sub-piece of privacy and we just do privacy but we never talk about identity it seems to me that we're missing out on something because this ability to curate your identity is what's going to be important going forward and that's a completely different conceptual framework if you think about what companies are doing today a lot of them are thinking hard about how to build digital identities and they're focusing on that as the conceptual atom of what they're doing not in the individual data piece so isn't there a isn't there like a granularity problem here where the data focus is obscuring what we actually will see in the use cases going forward, a focus on identity? Yeah, so again, I think that's the right uh, thing to look at. And I think in, in a sense what GDPR, or GDPR and then previously the directive were doing with this very um, sort of all-encompassing approach to say, you know, sensitive data or, or personal data is any data that could be used and put together to identify someone, that they were taking that sort of broadest sense of um, how do we prevent people from being observed? Uh, and the notion being, well, it, you know, once you can identify who they are, you're observing them. And if you can't identify who they are, by contrast, you're not observing them. And so they've sort of followed that, that sense of privacy. Uh, I mean, is it a th think about Online is different in the sense that the potential for being identified is much greater than we're used to in the physical world. If we think of something like a shopping experience, if I walk into a physical shop, pick up some goods, pay for them, walk out, they will get some identity at the point at which you know I make the sale. But if I've just gone browsing and walked out again, they probably haven't collected any identity from me. If I do the same with an online commerce site typically there will be some identity information that or information that allows the site to identify me that is disclosed within that transaction. So generally speaking, as you go around online, it's extraordinarily hard not to be identifiable. I mean, you can you can take special steps. You can use uh, special uh, browsers. There's one called Tor. Uh, you can use virtual private networks. You can use you know, a whole bunch of different technologies. But for your bog-standard user... <laughs> Um, the act of traversing the internet uh, leaves enough traces that they could be identified in a way that is arguably different from the act of traversing the street um, 
uh, unless it's the UK where they have CCTV or the district corner now or traversing shopping. And again, interestingly, actually shops now, when you go and check out, they're like, oh, can I get lots of personal data from you in order uh, so I can so give you some special offer? But no, I just want to collect your data. So, so the physical world is increasingly narrowing the gap with the online world, but the online world is is sort of inherently um, you, you are inherently much more easily identified than you are in the offline world. Um, and, and again, I think that throws up a lot of the problems. If they're, uh, uh, well, problems, challenges around implementing the law. But if the intent of the law is to kind of allow you to traverse online services in, in a non-identifiable form, that is a very heavy lift in terms of re-engineering everything, re-engineering all of the technology. Um, and you can see that you can see that in measures against specific technology like cookies, where you know that's a uh, the European uh, Parliament has said, well, you know, we can make you a bit less identifiable if we make it harder to use cookies. Um, yes, but there's your IP address, there's all these other factors, there's browser fingerprint, all this sort of stuff going on. So, I think a really profound question is, are we trying to de-identify the internet? And if so. Yeah, that requires a lot more engineering lift and thought than I think these little spot measures around the edges. And there's a value to having an identified internet as well. I mean, it's what underpins a lot of the e-commerce. You can't have e-commerce based on anonymity. It is what uh, allows a platform or any service really to tailor its services more specifically to you, something that most of us appreciate. And so it seems as if we're, we're, we're always ending up in this, this uh, trade-off between what we can get for our data and what the actual cost is in terms of confidentiality, autonomy, being observed, disturbed. What do you think about that equation? Are we striking it right now? Or do you think that there is a need for us to renegotiate it over the coming, say, five, ten years? I, I think it is going to be renegotiated. I mean, there's a, there's a really question. that It does seem to me that most ordinary users of the internet are comfortable with the deal they get right now. They're not you know, turning off in droves. There are there are bumps along the road. Um, but generally speaking, you see people using all of the main brand internet services uh, quite happily. Uh, uh, just, sorry to interrupt, but I think this is, this, we also need to make a clarification here because if you look at the studies out there, what you just said will, will look strange because every single study says that everyone is super concerned about privacy. But that's partly a method design problem, isn't it? Because if I ask you, are you concerned about your privacy, then the answer to that question can only be yes, because if you say no, you're signaling that you're massively uninteresting and that, and that you're not savvy and that you don't understand that there could be challenges here, right? So, so I, I agree with you. I think you, you, you're sort of painting the right picture, but it's just worthwhile bringing up those studies because they always are brought up when that yeah. argument is made. It's exactly right. Yes. I mean, you know, who says I don't want more privacy <laughs> if asked that question? And, and that's why those services, I think, are very limited use. I, I, what I'm really interested in is, yes, are, are people voting with their feet? Are they saying, you know, I, I think it's such a bad deal? Because that's, that's really their judgment on the deal they're getting. You know, if the yeah. deal you get from... Amazon, for example, is is working for you, and that includes they've got lots of data about you. They offer you lots of stuff, lots of recommendations. You know, you can both 
feel comfortable with that deal and keep using the service and respond to a question, do you think Amazon is a threat to your privacy? Yes. <laughs> but you've... It's behavior over opinion in a sense, right? Behavior yeah. gives the clearer signal here. Yeah, you get them both. And you haven't walked away. And, and um, yeah, I actually think, you know, again, and use those examples, if, if Amazon felt that people were being turned off by the way in which they're using data, they would change it. They're a savvy business. And so there's something you know, in the offers that you get from the Googles and the Amazons and Facebooks that still is very attractive to people. I think it's foolish to ignore that. Having said that, there are a lot of critics. And I think the really interesting critics is, are the uh, question is, are the critics the proverbial canary down the coal mine that can smell the explosive gas uh, before everything blows up and, and we should be you know, listening to them because because they put their finger on something that needs to fundamentally change, and their the typical refrain is, "We need different business models. These business models that are based on using a lot of personal data to personalize things are not sustainable." Now, are, are they right, or um, you know, are, are they are those are they become sort of even less relevant over time because the great march of people is going to be to keep on using the services. And and yes, whilst people are interested in skepticism as a sort of minority sport, it isn't going to become mainstream. And the question I think is also, would it change things? Because if you imagine one of the models that is being suggested is a subscription model where, where you wouldn't need to collect data in order to, to target advertising. There, there are two flaws in that scenario. One, you don't only collect data to target advertising. You actually do it to improve the service, to have some basic security things in place to make sure you get what you need. So that's one flaw, right? You might even argue that if you're subscribing, you should expect the other party to collect more data so you get a better service, which is sort of counterintuitive. Now, the other flaw I think is interesting is imagine that all of the services on the internet overnight became subscription services and they collected no data whatsoever. Now, look at what people are doing. Would they share less personal data on those services than they already are? If you look at how much data is being shared, pictures, images, updates, all those different things across those platforms, you could easily make the prediction that that's going to increase by an order or two orders of magnitude in the coming five to 10 years anyway, which means that the amount of personal data that is out there, the liquidity, if you will, of personal data would increase massively, even if the companies stop tomorrow collecting personal data. And there seems to be, the business model argument seems to be sort of missing that dimension of the challenge, doesn't it? Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're right. And advertising is probably something we can we can spend a whole other episode oh, we on. Should, we should, yeah, we so should, yes. Come yes. back to that. But, um, but, but just as a baseline, though, I think you're right that... Um, Advertising is normally a byproduct of the core uh, function of the service. So the core function of Google is to give you search results that are useful. And that also means that they collect data that they can use to advertise to you. The core function of Facebook is to let you share stuff with your family and friends. And that also gives them useful data to use to advertise. The core function of Amazon is to sell you stuff, um, but the data can be used. They've got a nice advertising business on the side uh, from people who want to sell stuff like the stuff you've bought. So in all of these cases, the advertising business model, in a sense, you know, it might at the margins incentivize some additional data collection, but it isn't the main event. The main event for the data collection is the core proposition of that particular service. And so if you get rid of the advertising business model, I don't think we should confuse that with getting rid of uh, uh, the data collection. Where you would get rid of the data collection is if you said no more personalization, um, because most of the data collection is around personalization. 
so that's that's why you're doing it. When you say service improvement, it means my service is going to be more attractive and more sticky to you because I know things about what you like. I so I agree with that, and I think you're absolutely right. Personalization, and often, as you pointed out, I think location is the single most important factor that you look at. So it's not really personalization; it's localization when it comes to that point. But but I think that the there, there's another dimension here, which is that okay, stop personalization. Do people share less personal data if that happens? No. Yeah. I, I mean, so how? Yeah, I, the, I'm not sure they would. Yeah, I think they might wear. So, so again, let's imagine it as a thought experiment. So when you turn up at you know Amazon again. Um, it doesn't give you, it's a bland Amazon. It gives everybody exactly the same product all of the time, you know, that they saw with no pre-knowledge of stuff that you bought previously. I, I think you're going to start to want to put data in there and find ways to personalize it uh, just because it's going to be that much more useful. So, and, and on no personalization on, say, Snap or Facebook or anywhere else, would that lead to people sharing fewer pictures of themselves um, in the beach or what they're doing or all of that personal data that is about them? No, they would continue doing that. So any future you look at, we are going to, as individuals, if you just sort of look at us, be more sharing than not less. Exactly. And so, so some of the... Um... Interesting questions are, that I think perhaps don't don't get as much attention as they should are around things like longevity of data. Uh, right. Uh, where you know, uh, um, uh, Victor Meyer Schoenberg wrote this book uh, some years ago about deletion of data that was really, you know, the right to be forgotten, yeah. the virtue of forgetting in the digital age. Yeah. It was called something else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, Victor will be horrified that I mangled it because I actually read it in manuscript. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it was called delete. Delete. The virtue of forgetting and the yeah, 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 no, yeah, no, yeah, it, yeah, it was delete. And so I think I think some of those questions around you know data decaying are quite interesting. Uh, and ephemerality. I think Snap actually hit on something really important there, and was sort of then a, a, a mode that was uh, copied across many platforms. And this notion of ephemerality that you actually want uh, a degradation over time, yeah. I think is is probably right. Now you get that anyway, because there's so much information and so many websites dying and so many protocols disappearing that you have what is usually referred to as bit rot. So there's a natural background forgetting happening on the internet, but designing that forgetting so that it becomes an integral part i think we'll see much more of and i think most social media services have some version of that now exactly so yeah the, the stories type thing that everyone took on because they recognize this there is a desire to put data out there but not to feel that it's going to be there forever so i think we're going to become more sophisticated in terms of how we use the services but you're right the volume is still you know in the volume in 2030 of personal data that's flying around if people are living their lives online, is going to be significantly bigger than it was in 2020 and orders of magnitude bigger than it was in 2000 or 1990. You know, so we're, we are, the amount of, d of data that's flying about will increase. And then the question becomes, how do we manage that? Um, and you're right, it, you know, some of the solutions that are suggested to say, well, if we didn't have business model X or if we have legislation Y, that will reduce the quantity of data. That's the bit that I'm not, at all convinced about it. I think either of us is convinced about because if the data is part of a set of transactions that are actually valuable to people um, and people want to make those transactions, the data is going to keep getting generated. Um, and as I say, we, we discussed, you could take out one piece of it, you could say, well, let's stop the data going to the advertisers now. 
um, fine. And that might be an interesting thing that we can discuss later. Um, but that doesn't mean that the data problem is solved or the data doesn't necessarily exist. No, and it sort of seems to be solving the wrong part of the problem. Because if you if you think about it, the advertisers are, they operate under the GDPR. They operate under legislative rules, which means that if the data is with them uh, or with other uh, data controllers, data processors, there's a legal framework for it. But the pure increase of personal data at large in the system is not regulated. So, so you're sort of if if your real intention here, if your regulatory intent is to ensure that people have better privacy, that data protection works for them, you seem to be addressing a very small subset of the problem, which has to do with a number of corporations and states and agencies processing data, whereas the amount of personal data overall is exploding and ballooning, and nobody's doing anything about that. So it's it's a it's an intriguing situation. And to you to go back to you said earlier, and I. I cut you off when we said you said this would have to be renegotiated over time. The balance between the data we offer, the services we get, and you thought that it would be renegotiated. How do you think it will be renegotiated? Well, I actually think it'll be ironically um, renegotiated in favor of the the data producers getting more explicit recognition of the value of the data they've produced. So, and this will be another force that sort of acts against. Uh, the idea that we're going to reduce the amount of data in circulation. So, so the bit that, that's sort of been missing, and you, you see examples today in, in um, YouTube would be the prime example of where creators at a certain level get recompense essentially for sharing their personal data videos they have made uh, online. It seems to me like there's probably quite a lot more upside for that where um, the value exchange of today, the value exchange today essentially is as a platform, we'll take your data and we'll use it to give you a better service. We'll use it to host your social media better, give you better search results, give you better e-commerce. I think over time, c- consumers will be more demanding and will say, well, that's not enough. <laughs> um, my day is actually worth a bit more. And uh, you know, I want some discounts on certain products or I want certain special features uh, for participating in my contributions to the data market. Um, and I think that's the bit that I think is most interesting, but it's not a privacy. It's not in the classic sense of privacy thing. It's not about reducing the amount of data. It's about empowering individuals to better dictate the terms under which others use the data that they provide. Because it seems as if what you're saying is that the, the price of data will go up. Uh, then I suspect that there will be uh, a better supply. More people will want to share their data because they'll get more for it, which means that you'll see more data overall in the system, right? But yeah. but let me let me sort of challenge. So so your negotiation is is saying that the, the the price of data will go up. More people will sort of require to get more for the data that they actually share. Is that reflected by the economics of the actual situation, though? Because what happens if you look at the value chain of data, it, you could essentially the, the simplest version, that sort of toy model of this, would be to say that you start out with data, then you structure that through the use of different kinds of computational methods into information. And then you interpret that information to get knowledge. And usually that interpretation has to be done by by human beings or really advanced uh, algorithms in different ways. So you have data, you have information, you have knowledge. And knowledge allows you to act, and that act has a value, which means that data is at the very beginning of the value chain. And value increases when we have information, structured data, and it increases even more when we have knowledge that allows us to act in A or B way. And 
currently what is happening is that we have an explosion of data. There's an enormous amount of data, but there is a bottleneck in getting the information because structuring it actually costs a lot of money and requires a lot of processing power. So wouldn't that argue for, for, for sort of a, a lower price of data? Now, there's so much of it, and there's such a high cost to structure it into information over time. I, I think it's not the data that's uh, going to have a price associated. It's the people behind the data, which is a crucial distinction. I, you get this sort of mm. phrase that people trot out, data is the new oil, which I really, Ugh. really don't like. And uh, for all sorts of reasons, um, because as you don't think the thing that is being, that is valuable, the thing that uh, has commercial value is the attention of a person. It's a person mm. buying some goods or doing something. And, and we lose sight of that sometimes. So what I'm saying is I think a, a person and their associated data is going to be the thing that is potentially valuable. It's going to become more differentiated. So instead of buckets of, you know, millions and millions of people uh, uh, or billions of people in the case of the largest platform being the thing that is tradable, you're going to, and this brings a whole set of other issues with it, by the way, but it's going to be much more about, you know, um, individuals of this uh, particular kind are, are essentially sort of selling themselves and their data uh, or entering into a contract on behalf of themselves and their data to get something in return, which is why I use the, the sort of YouTube YouTube example, because that's very explicit there. I am selling myself and my content uh, to YouTube for a certain fee in return. And, and I, that may become more the norm than the exception, uh, or at least for a, lo- a much broader pool of people that may become the norm. But yes, they're selling themselves. They're not selling standalone data. And, and and again, we come back to the conceptual model because you said something really important there, and I think it's worthwhile returning to in the, in the later podcast. They are selling their attention, right? Attention is the core uh, concept, here. and this is this is this is an insight. If you trace it back in informatics, you can trace it back at least to Herbert Simon, who in, in 1969 gave this talk on how to design information-rich organizations, and he has this portal sentence that is often quoted, and it's, it's quite beautiful, and it says that with a wealth of information comes a poverty of attention and a need to allocate efficiently and between that wealth of information and the poverty of attention that's where you know you see all of the platform economy it's essentially what the platform economy does that's a basic business model I think we should we should get back to this because it's worth it's worth its own but but you pointed yet again to a place where a lot of the data protection law and the privacy uh, debate is premised on on this model this conceptual model of data. That, that doesn't seem to reflect what it is that's actually happening. Is there any chance that we'll get away from that? I, I'm, I'm not sure. And again, I think, well, I think the place where we'll, you know, the, we'll sort of hit the sharp edge is around this notion of consent, um, which is already causing a lot of trouble. And again, people follow this in data protection terms. Uh, uh, consent is, for some people, you know, I click a box that says I agree. For other people, it's actually a very complex sort of theoretical legal construct which says, look, just clicking a box to say you agree to something is not consent. And um, but but I think in in a world I've described where people are, if they say genuinely saying, look, I I'm happy with the value exchange. Maybe the value exchange is a different one from the one before, but I'm happy with it. And yet it's a very complex value exchange that maybe involves multiple partners. You know, I'm, I'm, my value exchange is I'm getting something from this particular website, but this website has got 20 other partners. And the reason it can give me the value is because it is passing some of my data onto those other 20 partners. Um, and I've consented to that. You know, that 
that I think your expectation would be that that would be sufficient. Um, but yes, in the data model, that may not be sufficient because they're really focused on the detail of all the agreements between all the different partners. And maybe they say, well, you know, your consent was not invalid. You may think it was, but it wasn't. You couldn't possibly have consented to that arrangement um, because the data is going to flow in ways that we don't think are appropriate. Um, so I think, yes, it's going it, to, we are going to hit some real challenges around uh, the regulatory model in Europe, which has been copied in other places. Um, if if it, ret it re remains sort of very focused on, uh, as a sort of more traditional ways of moving data between people, and less on how um, people are going to feel comfortable in in uh, future years in terms of, you know, again, if they've genuinely given their permission for something, they've entered into a contract. Um, that's where I think you know they would have a reasonable expectation that the law wouldn't then frustrate them from taking part in that contract. Uh, but we have, and, and yeah, sorry, but micro example today of. You know, people are in Europe are signing up to services who are storing their personal data in other foreign jurisdictions where there may be no data protection law at all. And again, some people in Europe would say, well, that shouldn't be allowed to happen. Uh, but others would, consumers might say, well, look, you know, if my data is being stored in China and riffled through by the Chinese government, as long as I know that, um, I want the service, I'm happy to enter into that agreement. Slightly frequently, but that's. That's, again, a, sort of a very present-day example of what I mean by are we applying you know, the theoretical uh, model in the law or are we allowing people to override that with their own choices? And, 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 and that brings home another distinction that I think is interesting and brings us back to the beginning of the podcast because one reason that's happening is, of course, that data protection law is a mix of private law and public law. There's a very strong public law element still there in data protection law that tries to protect the individual citizen from uh, their own misjudgment. There's sort of a there's and that goes back to the rights thinking, goes back to sort of the the entire discussion that we had in the beginning, and then and and that brings me to another slightly different question. I mean, if you look at the ability that data protection uh, law and policy has to change, uh, one thing you have to to understand, I think, is also the institutional framework it exists in. So what do you think the role is of the DPAs in the way that data protection is developing? Uh, I mean, the, the, it's been interesting. Sorry, the data protection authorities. Data protection authorities in Europe. I mean, it's interesting to watch them because they do have this hybrid role. At one level, they're a dispassionate regulator. Uh, and, the, and this comes back to the data protection privacy thing. Again, one level, dispassionate regulator. Theirs is, their job is not to judge on whether you know, business is a good business or a bad business, but merely to determine whether or not they've followed the rules. And if it's a data-hungry business, but they've got all the consents lined up and all the right stuff in place, then at one level, the DPA should not take a view on, on that as long as it's all legit and, and they follow all the principles. But at another level, um, data protection agencies tend to be strong advocates for privacy and therefore, you know, very skeptical of and aggressive towards data-hungry businesses and in many cases the kind of business you and I work for, American uh, American tech businesses, you know, lots of DPAs are quite happy to go out and be very, very publicly critical of them. And I would say that's more in their function as privacy champions than strictly it is about data protection enforcement. It kind of goes beyond that. Um, so I think that's, again, an interesting question politically for governments. Um, and you mentioned earlier sort of regulatory intent. 
is it the regulatory intent of a government to have data protection law used to limit certain forms of data using business? And, and is that the instruction they give to their, their DPAs are independent, but still governments set a climate or regulation sets a climate? Or is it their intent to say to be kind of more neutral as long as the principles of the law are being reserve, uh, observed? And that there is quite a difference between those two. I think most of the people in this space, in Europe at least, are more in the campaigning end of the, uh, the campaigning end of the spectrum. Most people who get interested in this subject, I think, do have a, a, a pr an in principle opposition to data hungry businesses. Uh, they're not neutral on that subject. Um, and there's an adversarial position where, where they feel that they're representing a fragmented interest that needs to be collectively defended by the agency or authority in question, right? That's right. And I mean, they're representing individual citizens as well. I mean, that's their core function. And, and again, it's not to undermine the function they do. You know, having an ability for an individual citizen to go to a data protection agency and have them check whether something is being done correctly is is absolutely proper and that's the the core function i think it's the function beyond that uh, to the point at which they say you know well well we want to go after these kinds of businesses because we don't think they should exist we don't think that business model should exist for me that would be more a political decision to be taken by the government and again as we talk about and we'll come back to this on the advertising stuff we talk about advertising and cookies and uh, there's a whole ecosystem of people who are called ad tech advertising technology who who uh, are the people that make those adverts pop up wherever you go on the web of things that you've been looking for and they're not all american businesses so this is going to be an interesting uh, sort of dilemma to work through yes google facebook amazon etc american and and so for uh, European authorities to enforce aggressively against them may seem relatively low cost. Um, but if we move in this direction, you're potentially then going to make it impossible for the ad tech businesses in Europe to, to keep operating. And they will have a stronger local lobbying voice to say, whoa, hang on a minute, you know, we think we can do this legitimately within the GDPR. You know, why are you coming after us? So I think that'll be one of the crunch points is European ad tech as a business and politicians in European countries deciding whether they agree actually that they want to, you know, um, throttle back or completely get rid of the online targeted advertising business model for data protection reasons or privacy reasons, or whether they think it is a, a viable and legitimate business as long as it's done within the reasonable constraints of the GDPR. And then there's a mechanism design question here. I think the DPAs are doing a really good job as advocates for privacy, but there's nobody doing an equal job for the, the, the sort of corresponding interests on the other side. One could be economic to your point, but I'm also thinking about uh, things like you know, genetic research or medical research or research in general. And and you will, and, and free expression, as we mentioned earlier, that was one of the great concerns before the 9546 EC, you know, would free expression be curtailed? And, and I think we have found that it hasn't been. And some actually have. I think the ICO has both in its its charter and it, it would be interesting to have a debate about what are the what are the mechanisms that can be put in place to strike a balance between the legitimate interests of data protection and the equally legitimate interests of using data for knowledge discovery or for economic growth because that now seems to be a, a core component a core growth engine in a lot of the economy that's right, right? and those decisions i think have to be taken by politicians not regulators and once politicians have decided 
in an open debate how they want to weigh those equities. Um, and so if politicians decide, and this is sort of one the criticisms I'd have of the, the famous uh, cookie directive in the EU is politicians were, I think, uh, I think they were deciding that they wanted to damage the online advertising system or roll it back, but it wasn't made explicit. And so if politicians explicitly want to say, look, in, in you know, Denmark or Sweden or UK or wherever it is, um, we don't think that our publishers should be able to fund themselves through this targeted advertising model. You've got to find some other way of doing it. Uh, great. Like say it and then have a legal framework that follows it. Um, or conversely, if you want to say, look, we in our country think freedom of expression is so important that even when somebody is, you know, uh, uh, putting out information, embarrassing photos or something that might otherwise be taken down under data protection law, as you know, <laughs> we've decided that those embarrassing photos should be allowed to stay up there. That's our political decision. Um, but again, I think that's, you, you put your finger on something that's missing from the debate, which is that explicit conversation. We have a privacy conversation in one track, and we have an economic conversation in another track, and a freedom of expression conversation in another track, and not enough recognition that each of the three impacts on the other. Um, and, and, you know, and then, so they, they will, you know, freedom of expression, if you champion it, yes, it does potentially have a negative impact on privacy. Uh, if you champion economic growth at all costs, yes, it potentially has a negative impact on privacy. But equally, privacy can have a negative impact on economic growth and on freedom of expression. And we need to work out where those equities lie. Yes, I think that's an excellent way to an excellent note to end on. And we will probably get back to this subject or we will get back to it, I think, in a subsequent podcast as well. So um, thank you. And uh, you can find this podcast where? At www.regulate.tech. Perfect. And as always, keep your questions coming. All ideas, comments, etc. Are, are deeply welcome. And uh, thanks for listening. Take care. <laughs>